This is the Front Page Podcast from the Red and Black. This week, podcast editor Midori Jenkins and assistant podcast editor Jim Bass share a collection of short stories and poems selected from various issues of the Georgia Review. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Werewolfness, a poem written by Baron Wormser. The sizable literature more or less agrees. The beast loves the first scream best, the one when its face first becomes plain. Fluorescence will do, but moonlight is best. There is to the distress something horribly natural about such an inordinate event. At nighttime, anything can occur. Fear grows familiar. Imagination relents. Is the victim a victim? Will the moment remain vividly impaled? Could astonishment rebound and grab the half-thing by its unlikely tail? After possibility comes identity. A letdown, but nothing stays forever new. Its brief glory past, the creature does indifferently what it never wanted to do. The Art of Becoming, Patty Ann Rogers The morning, passing through, narrowing and widening, parabolas of orange and spotted sunlight on the lawn, Moving in, shifting gold-gray shawls of silk lying low, thinning and rising through stalks of steeple bush and bed straw, through the first star of the first finch streaking past the vacancy in the sky where the last white stone of star was seen, can only be defined in the constant change of itself. The particular leaf, pushing its several green molecules outward to a hard edge of photosynthesis, microscopic in its building and bumping continuously from one moment to the next, only becomes magnolia in this prolonged act of its dying. Realization itself is the changing destruction and process of cells failing and rising constantly in their creation of thought. If every white glint on the surface of the holly, every clenching hair in the amber center of spiraea, every slight of insect wing and cactus spire, the crevice tricks of fern segment and sunfish blade were halted right now in this moment, one instant caught perfectly and lasting forever, then now would be the only and final statement of this work. Immortality must only exist in the sound of these words recognizing, through the circling and faltering of oak trees, through the knot of midnight tightening and loosening, through star streams inventing destination, by the fact that their direction, and the sound of these words, recognizing their need to pray over and over and over for the continuing procedure of their own decay. This poem is called The Death of a Family by Catherine A. Connell. It was published in the Georgia Review, fall issue of 1954. They are not dead, not all of this family, but they seem like the dead in the midst of our town. Whatever it was, it came on so quickly, and we never knew if it had a real name. But they kept to each other those long summer Sundays. Their lawns grew up wild, and they pulled in their blinds. No, it wasn't the death or the strange single daughters, or the illness or debts, and it wasn't disgrace. It was like an old question we didn't want answered. Still, there once was a time when we knew all their names. This short story is titled The Elixir by Sherry Joseph. It was first published in the Georgia Review in winter of 1998. Monday morning, another one. I'm finished with the feeding and I'm fetching a wheelbarrow to start mucking stalls. 
when I feel my boot roll something as soft and little as a mouse. It tumbles a few feet along the brick-lined wall, spinning dust and cobwebs and horsehair and specks of sh wood shavings about in itself as it goes. When I pick it up, it's grown into a grayish cocoon wrapped around a little pulse of life. I know it's alive, the way you know a cocoon has a life in it, despite the fact that I just kicked it half across the floor, but it's so entangled it can't move. I hold it as gently as I can and worry some of the grime away with my fingernails. A black reed of a beak appears like a grain of wood, wild rice, then a glimmer of green feathers. A pumping iridescent breast the size of my thumb, another damned hummingbird. They come in here after the fluorescent lights. Maybe a thing with a, with a brain the size of a needle's eye can't tell the difference between a gladiolus and a tube full of electricity. I don't know, but they fly in here sometimes and just bounce off the lights like moths. I saw one doing that for a good 10 minutes until it, I scooched out, scooched out the door with a, a broom, then it flew away. If I don't catch them in time, they'll exhaust themselves and wind up the, on the floor, like this one. Their metabolism so fast, they just short out for after a while. Once I uncovered her white throat, I know it was a female. Maybe she's the same one I chased out yesterday. Stubborn, I tell her. See where it got you? But you can't reason with a bird as if it was your teenage daughter. Then again, teenagers don't necessarily listen any better than birds. They're bound to go zinging off their own bright lights, deaf to, deaf to common sense. With Marcy, it was cities. First Atlanta, then Jacksonville, then Memphis, three times home in the back of a police car. Between those and after, I never knew her, knew her locations or what drew her one place or another. Something about a city. She'd show you with her, her glass-hard eyes and the set of her chin which way she was oriented, as if she were picking up a distant signal other people couldn't hear. As if the whole time you were trying to talk to her, she was listening to someone else. The truth was, I didn't understand that girl. I wanted reasons. Sometimes I blamed her dad for not paying attention to her. She's not easy to love, Jimmy would inform me like it was news, and I'd holler back, she's your daughter, she's 13. We would fall into silence, and later Marcy would pass through to get a Pop-Tart and go back to her room without ever looking at us, as if she walked into another reality and Jimmy and I were, in, were just background flutter, characters on her TV. After Atlanta, she returned armored in the proof that she could take care of herself. It's not about you, she would say. It's not about him either. But I wanted a cause, and when she took off for Memphis, I settled on Jimmy. He came home one day hauling the trailer, another horse he had gotten from a bargain. And I said, no sir, you are not bringing another horse in, in my barn, not at a time like this. He said, fine, he'd pasture it over Ernie's place. And I said, fine, and you can go with it. I meant it too. Since then I lived alone, except for the brief times when Marcy was home. The last time I saw her the way I think of her now, she was 14. Round, pretty face, long hair, I used to wash and comb. I didn't see her again until, I was and she was, until she was 19, and sick, too weak to stand. I'm dying, Mama, is what she'd say over the phone, as if there would be no use arguing. I need a place to stay for a while. She came off the plane in a wheelchair. A flight attendant rolled her through a dazzle of sun that flooded the glass walls of the terminal, so that, sh so, that she, so that she all but vanished in light. Then she was before me, my daughter, wide blue eyes and a crooked smile, wanting to know would I have recognized her. She was true to her word about the dying, though at times her body argued otherwise. Miracle drugs, first one, then another, briefly lifted her strength, and for a time she would feel well. 
But eventually, I had to quit my job to look after her, to feed her, and clean the vomit and try during the bad spells to keep her in bed. She wandered, even after she lost her sight. I'd find her bumping around the house, disoriented, looking for a door. Once in winter at midnight, I found her outside in nothing but a nightgown, barefoot in the garden, out of her wits. Come inside, love, I begged, tugging her chilled arm, but she persisted towards the west, chin thrust before her as as if it knew the way. Why are you so stubborn? Look where it's gotten you. Instructive, forgetting her blindness, I pointed to the coiled hose where her feet were tangled, the naked, frost-crusted vines climbing the trellis. But she didn't know me. She had somewhere to go, it seemed, and it took me a time to turn her face, to coax her back indoors. From then on, I put her down each night in my own bed between my body and the wall. Nine times in 14 months, I carried her to the emergency room, vomiting, diarrhea, pneumonia, blindness, dementia, words I didn't know how to attach to my daughter. An IV went directly in her chest. A tube served her last meals. I cleaned her as I had when, I was a, when she was a baby. Never, never in all my prayers did I imagine a child returned this way. 44 different medications, and each one wore itself out, or wore her out, and no sooner one horror banished than another rooted in a new spot. Resisting the drugs, or caused by the drugs, the internal functions in chaos, and shut down in revolt. It seemed wrong, after all that, that the one to end it would be a strain of tuberculosis only birds get. The doctor thought she'd carried it for some time, and that she'd probably picked it up from pigeon droppings. In a, in a city, he said, she could hardly have avoided exposure. It was in the air that everyone breathed. This spring, five years after her death, the hummingbirds started showing up. I find them buzzing along the walls within a few inches from the ground, or panting in the horse's bedding, their little feet rimmed with cobwebs. One I found actually caught in a new web, suspended from a crossbeam, like some spider's lunch with its miniature wings outspread. I looked up and it blinked. I swear I saw it blink at me with its black pin eyes. After Marcy died the way she did, I never wanted to touch a bird, any bird. Dirty things, they seemed. And these minute visitors so often arrive, coated in a filth denser than their own bodies. But I can't just let them leave them to die. Hummingbirds never touch the earth if they can't help it. So once they're down, they must have no capacity to cast off the lint of their world. Perhaps their own bodies even attract it somehow. But, but underneath the matted debris, they're like jewels still, just lifted off and they shimmer again. I admit it's a trial to clean a thing so delicate, always feeling that one unfortunate twitch of your finger could crush it beyond repair. I always try. I know some magic too. This little female I carry up to the house this morning. She's weaker than most, still partly cocooned, won't even lift her head to give me a defiant look like some of them do. On the back porch, I drop two sugar cubes in a coffee mug, add some water, pop the mug into the microwave. While it warms, I use a pair of tweezers still out here from last time to remove the remaining cobwebs and one long, dark, horsetail hair that has the bird bound like a, a package. When she's free, she lies on her side of my palm, breathing five breaths for every second. You're going to use up your life awful fast at that rate, I tell her. They never listen. Sorry about kicking you, I add. That probably didn't help. I take the mug out of the microwave and stir the water, then scoop out a teaspoonful. Specks of sugar are still visible in the spoon's silver bowl, but I hold it up to the bird anyway. Submerge the tip of of her reed-like beak, at first, she didn't, doesn't move. Then her black lash of a tongue 
flicks out once, experimentally. Pretty soon the tongue is going like the needle of a sewing machine, ravenous. I'm freshly amazed, even caged in my loose curled fingers, surely she's terrified of this giant. The bird knows sugar when she tastes it, knows her body needs it, and she drinks. For a full minute she drinks, then seems to tire. She looks at me, her stiff matchstick wings are spread against my palm like little flippers, propping her upright. What intricate mechanisms of the body must be required to beat those wings into a blur, to, to zip quick as a bee to a flower cup and then hover, poised there in startling visibility. What strength. I've never kicked one across the floor before, can't imagine the damage. But I go outside onto the step and open my hand. There's no moment of waiting, hoping. Like magic, she rises. Her wings hum with effort, and her leaving is slow, gradual, as if her body was heavier than she remembers. But still, she rises over the barn and past it. To the limits of vision, she is dark seed lofted into the morning. And I clap my hands into my face, forgetting the dirtiness of birds. All I wanted in the end was one last drug. Marcy lay in the hospital bed, her long, clean hair spread on the pillow around her upturned face. She weighed 82 pounds. She didn't know me, didn't know where her body lay, spoke urgently in words as clear as daylight that made no human sense. There has to be another drug, I insisted. Someone's lab must hold a cure, newly cooked, experimental, untested. I'll take anything. What a slap from God to see these exhausted birds revived again and again with a single spoonful of sugar, but I never get tired of it. This has been the Front Page Podcast. Make sure to download our app and keep up with us on social media. To find more of our podcast episodes, visit redandblock.com or find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, we'll see y'all later.